Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Connor here. Welcome back to Earned, where we try to learn from the players that are disrupting the beauty and fashion industry. Uh, Today, we welcome a name that not a lot of you are going to know, but you should know, um, Kevin Gould. So welcome to the show, Kevin. Connor, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I I can tell you I'm a lot more excited for you to be here than I can imagine you are going to be to be on this show, right? And uh, the reason I'm so excited is that if you're to look at the performance of the brands that you have released over the last few years with your co-founders, the numbers are pretty pretty wild, right? So the the top line, which you can never ignore, is just revenue. So up from I think you're doing 75 million projected this year, up from four yeah. last year. Is that that about right? That's uh, that's correct. There you go. I wish we were doing 75. Uh, and then also, you've had three co-founders that were 30 under 30. And then insert name here is actually the number one brand we track in the hair tools, wigs, and accessories category when it comes to EMV, as well as just, I think they're the number two or three overall hair care brand we track, which is, yeah. you know, all those other brands are also trying uh, to do well with this. So yeah. uh, it's super impressive. Um, so congrats on all that, Kevin. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm really, you know, really excited to be here. I've, you know, followed you, followed Tribe Dynamics for a while and, and love what you guys are doing. And so I'm excited to jump into it. For sure. Uh, well, before, you know, typically we go background, philosophy, some fun questions, but there was an article that came out today that I'd love to get your opinion on. So it was in Harvard Business Review. It was from a woman named Lee Jin. So she was a partner at Andreessen Horowitz um, and now has a fund that invests very specifically in the creator and influencer economy. Um, and in there, she talks about this middle class of influencers and how they're really struggling. Um, and I think honestly, this probably there's a lot of parallels with the entertainment industry and you know the concentration of wealth at the top there for celebrities specifically. But the numbers that stood out to me first was just how many people actually want to be in it. So I think it was a third, thirty percent of all eight year olds want to become YouTubers one day, which is like, you know, of course, when you're eight years old, you don't really know what you want to do. And then second, but from an earning potential, right, on Patreon, only 2% of creators make minimum wage as of 2017. On Spotify, you need at least three and a half million streams per year just to get to full-time minimum wage earnings. And 1.4% of the influencers, or the, not the influencers, the artists make about 90% of all revenue. Um, So for you, do you think that there will, you know, if this middle class of influencers isn't really making any money, are they going to continue to stick around once the initial kind of euphoria has gone away or, or not? What, what do you yeah. think? I mean, look, I think there's a lot to unpack there. It's, it's interesting, right? I think uh, there's a lot of parallels between becoming an influencer and the, uh, the aspiration to be an influencer and the same thing that's happening with becoming an entrepreneur, right? It's really aspirational mm. to be an entrepreneur it's really aspirational to be an influencer. Um, but I think when people get into it, they realize it's a really, really hard thing to do. Um, and to your point, there's also a widening gap of there's, you know, a chunk of influencers, let's say a few hundred that are the mega influencers that are, you know, making up the lion's share of the earnings. And then you've sort of got this like middle ground where, you know, I think they have to be really careful not to end up in no man's land. So you've got this, you've, and it, it's, it's tough, right? Because I think when these influencers come up on their on the rise and they start to gain somewhat of a following, um, 
you know, they're, they're encouraged by their growth, but at the same time, once they reach a certain point, it becomes much, much harder to grow. And so I think for the ones that can get to get out of that sort of like middle ground and that middle phase, they've got to really figure out how they're going to differentiate, but also di differentiate and get scale at the same time, which is really hard to do. And so um, there's a lot that are left in that bucket where the big brand deals are going to the bigger influencers. They're having their entire merch businesses built out, they're owning brands. And then these sort of mid-tier influencers are left with um, some brand deals, but those, those deals in the middle are getting compressed as the brands get smarter, right? And there's more supply of, you know, mid-tier influencers. And then maybe they've got some options now like Patreon or OnlyFans or some subscription platforms. Um, but the reality is a, a large majority of them, um, you know, ideally should be using this as a jumping off point for anything else they want to do in their career. And it's, it's probably an advantage for anything they want to do in the future because I think content, uh, is king or, or queen, right? And so, um, I think there is a, there is sort of like a big danger of like a no man's land for a lot of these, these mid tier influencers. And they're going to have to figure out, uh, are they either going to, you know, figure out how to differentiate and get scale or are they going to have to do this for a couple of years and, and uh, maybe make a little bit of a pivot and a, and a shift in what their overall career is. And, it, and it's a lot like startups and entrepreneurs, right? There's a lot of people that try to start companies. And, um, you know, the reality is there's very few that actually make it past the, the beginning or middle stages. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that your point on finding this or using this as an opportunity for career advancement in some other way, shape or form is like totally valid. I know that a lot of the smaller to mid-tier influencers are taking on brand jobs where they're working inside of a brand and their expertise and the time they put into becoming a content creator really helps them to do that job, right? Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the years because it's, you know, like the numbers are crazy in terms of what kids want to become and how aspirational this has become as a profession for them versus the realities of how much they're actually earning. Right. And, I, I also, I also think there's, you know, in that mid tier, if they're a lifestyle influencer, there's lots of lifestyle influencers in the mid tier. Right. But when you find a really interesting niche with a really rabid community um, you know, I've seen like some real estate uh, influencers pop up on TikTok or some doctor that really came up through COVID. Right. And they're like giving COVID updates. Like, They've got a smaller, like mid-level influence, but it's super targeted and there's very few people going after those spaces. That's really how you can differentiate. You don't necessarily have to be the biggest because you have a really, um, you know, engaged base. But the ones that are just like broad, you know, lifestyle influencers, I think that's where if they can't differentiate, they run into trouble. Totally. I mean, you can think of us that way, right? We're producing a podcast that is certainly not making money via large scale advertising and, and eyeballs, right? But for us, you know, the community that we serve finds a lot of value in it. And the people that we're talking to are incredibly high value for us as a business, right? And so, 100%. you know, although we're going to get, it's only gonna be a few thousand people that are going to listen to this, it's gonna be a few thousand really important people to us specifically. Yep. Um, like I think you mentioned the, uh, in another interview, you mentioned, uh, PPP influencers, right? People that just like, that's all they specialized yep. on. And you yep. said that and I was like, oh my God, I remember following those people around that time because we were trying to evaluate, like, should we be applying for that? Should we not? Et cetera, et cetera. And so it was, um, yeah, super, super, it just makes a ton of sense.
hundred percent. There was one, there was, I think it was a woman who, who literally was the go-to for PPP loans. And she really racked up a, a really strong user base and following. I'm sure she's pivoting that into something else around just uh, other business trends. So um, just got to get creative. Totally. Well, let's, let's get into your background a little bit for those that don't know you. So you obviously you went to school, right? Went to, went to college and you know, you were quoted as saying that if you had to go back, you actually wouldn't have gone to school again if you were 18 yeah. years old. So I guess the question I have is, you know, if you were telling somebody that was 18 what to do, or if you were doing it yourself, you know, what would you do differently? Sure. Yeah. Look, I think it depends on obviously what field you're going into. I think if you have, if you want to be a doctor, I think there's certain fields that you hundred percent need to go to school. I think in business, I think it just really, um, it's like different strokes for different folks. So for me, I, I can kind of speak to myself. I, you know, I came up when sort of the internet was just kind of coming around. There's YouTube wasn't really going yet. Facebook, I think was just coming out when I was a freshman in college. And so at the time I didn't have another choice. I think I, I came up in that sort of last generation where you still kind of had to go because there weren't enough other places to really um, consume information and learn. I think if you're 17 or 18 now and you're, um, you know, you know, you want to be in business or you think you want to be an entrepreneur, or you, you, you want to be entrepreneurial. I don't necessarily think you need to go to school. I think you can learn a lot on the Internet. You can learn a lot on YouTube. You can learn a lot more in real life, real world experience, interning or, you know, working at a startup or in whatever interests you want to go into. And so, look, hindsight's twenty twenty. If I could go back, I maybe I would have, um, you know, skipped school and, and, and went straight into a bunch of internships. But at the time, it was the only thing I could do. But I think if I was 18 now, uh, I'm just excited for everyone that's young now because there's just so much information out there that they can consume. And, uh, you know, the possibilities are, are endless. And I think that's my favorite part about the Internet. It's just like there is just an unlimited amount of information that you can consume. And the access to information is just it has to have a dramatic impact on, uh, I mean, just everything, right? Culture, the economy. Um, but specifically on young people, right? Their ability to learn about a topic instantly is, and it's, and, and there's not going to be less information in the future, right? There's only going to be more. And so, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting conceptually to think about if I was 18 and I knew what I knew now, what would I do differently? Um, or if I was 18 today, what would I do differently if I had today's information? So, okay. So after school, um, you went to LA, right? Moved to LA. And ended up kind of after a few different jobs working at WME, which is William Morris Endeavor. So one of the largest agencies in the mailroom, right? Um, and it sounds like you built up quite a Rolodex while you were there, which has been really impactful for you moving forward or, you know, in your career so far. Is that something you'd still recommend to other people or, you know, uh, yeah. or not? Yeah, abs- I mean, absolutely. It was uh, so you know, for those who don't know that the big talent agencies, right, it, it doesn't matter where you went to school or what background you come from. Everyone starts at the bottom and they start in this place called the mailroom. And, and when I was there, it was still like people were reading physical scripts. You were delivering scripts to actors. You were getting coffee for people. Uh, you know, you, you were doing anything that they basically told you to do. Right. Anything an agent told you to do, you did. Um, but what you got out of it was it was this like information hub that there's so much just information flowing through the agency around the entertainment business. There's so many relationships you gain from it. Uh, and for me, it was an experience that I wouldn't take back. I worked really, really hard. 
I got paid very little money. Um, I could have made a lot more money doing pretty much anything else. Um, but the, the relationships, the information, the working knowledge of how just the overall business worked was uh, invaluable for me. And, uh, and look now someone going into, into the entertainment business, I think, um, it's still a really great place to go. I think if you're, if you're looking to get in the digital space or like the brand space, you may not necessarily have to go to an agency. Um, you can go a lot of different places. There's digital management companies, uh, you can go inside a brand, but um, the the relationships and information that you get out of those big agencies, for me at least, was was really valuable. Knowing your business today, right, Combo, and obviously you guys have a talent management arm. How yeah. is that war going on? That war for talent between the kind of the new wave of agencies that are specifically designed around creators, influencers, the kind of new the new artists of the world. How is that working? Like, is, is WME putting up a good fight or is it like a, you know, um, or is it a little bit more one-sided, right? Are they just too, too yeah. slow moving? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the age some of the bigger agencies have been a pretty good, have done a pretty good job building out, uh, pretty sizable and very impactful digital departments. I think the key differences though, is that these talent and these influencers that are coming up, Whereas an actor coming up back in the day or even now, right, when they hear the word CAA or WME or UTA or whatever it may be, they've been seeing that their whole lives. They've been like they've been they've been acting for the last 10 or 15 years. You have a TikToker that comes up six months ago and you tell them CAA, they literally have no clue what that even means. Right. And so I think <laughs> I think the I think the, I think the impact that the agencies make, I don't know if it's lessened that much. I think it's that. The, uh, the name association and the value compared to just like a traditional talent and an actor maybe isn't as there as much. And so what that's done is it's made it a lot easier for up and coming managers or up and coming agents in the digital space to be competitive. Um, a lot of times complimentary because still people have managers and agents, right? But, yeah. you know, the barriers have been brought down a lot because because they're that just that name association isn't there as much as it. Uh, if you're an actor, you got to be with one of the big agencies a lot of times. If uh, and they have a lock on the information flow, but the digital space has been completely opened up, right? And also, influencers control their own distribution, so it's a lot different. Yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the agency business model, but I have to imagine it's going through incredible disruption. Um, I mean, just you know. But anyways, let's keep going. So Combo. So when I read about Combo, it sounds like four different businesses in one or maybe three different businesses in one. So how do you guys find balance there, right, across the different yeah. businesses? And maybe tell the audience a little bit about what Combo is, right? Both kind of what sure. it is today as well as where it started. Would love to hear that. Sure. Yeah. So in, in terms of what Combo is today, there's a few different parts of the business. There's, you know, as we mentioned, there's the talent management side that's really sort of boutique talent management firm and, um, you know, managing usually top tier creators in the digital space. And we still have sort of also like a boutique consulting practice where we work with a lot of late stage startups, some larger fortune 500 brands on digital and influencer strategy. And so I've had different iterations of that business for a long time. It's sort of taken a couple different paths over the years, but really a few years ago, I was like, all right, I've got this great, you know, service business. Um, but I really want to start building my own brands. And so a little over two years ago, sort of in the summer of 2018, when all this started coming into play, 
Um, I, uh, I started my first brand, which was with, with Sharon and Jordan, uh, uh, Sharon Pock and Jordan Wynn. It's a women's hair brand called Insert Name Here. And then uh, separately last year, launched two other brands that I co-founded. One was with my co-founder, Ann McFerrin, which is a, which is a beauty brand in the eyelash space called Glamnetic. And then the third brand was actually done with two large influencers, the Dolan Twins. It's a fragrance and scent brand called Wakeheart. And um, so right now, currently running, you know, co-own and operate three different brands. And it's been uh, it's been a wild ride these last, you know, these last two years. We're up to, I think there's like 95 people across everything now. So the team is, the teams have really grown. Um, yeah. Each brand, each brand operates independently. There's a lot of synergies that, um, that come into play from being able to, to leverage the fact that there are three brands together, um, whether it's working with vendors or fulfillment center or shipping rates or whatever it may be. But I have, I think the key is I have amazing co-founders on each brand and then they, uh, you know, they operate as distinct units with, um, you know, information flow and sharing as they go. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's an opportunity as those scale, I mean, to start building out something that looks more like an umbrella company, right. That owns kind of all the brands. I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily what the co-founder, the other co-founders would want, but it's certainly a very interesting opportunity, right? Uh, super early now to do that, but. So So, I, I, to kind of, to kind of, to kind of dig into that point. And I think you brought up a good point too, is, is when I set this up, I, you know, I really wanted to be able to have a few brands that could be complementary and help each other. But when you have different co-founders on each brand, um, they all have different, we all, we all have our own separate conversations on what to do with each particular brand. And so the, the sort of the whole co idea, which I think I kind of had a few years ago, it's sort of morphed more into, there's a lot of synergies from having some operations um, you know, shared across entities, but it's really the individual brand level and, 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 you know, building out distinct teams there is sort of the approach that we're taking. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, I think having the independence is super important, right? And especially, I don't know that's necessarily what they would have signed up for in the first place or been interested in, but it is interesting to think about kind of later on, uh, not something you have to solve today though. hundred percent. So how do you, how do you focus across that? I mean, I have a hard enough time doing one business. Um, how do you? How do you do four? I know I talked to Sharon and Jordan before this, and they said that you don't sleep. So that's one way, right? You increase. That's an extra yeah. eight hours of your yep. day you get back um, if you don't sleep at night. So how, how do you focus across all four? Yeah, yeah. I think look, I think Sharon and Jordan are right. I don't, I don't particularly sleep that much, but honestly, it's because I, I love what I do. I never feel like I'm working, and I'm just having a blast right now doing all this. I think the main thing though, and when I, you know, started all of these brands with everyone was the key was finding really amazing co-founders that could be my partners. Cause if it was just me, I, there's no way I could do this on my own. I think that I found, I was really lucky to find co-founders that had complementary and different skill sets than I did. And so I feel like I know where I can jump in and add a lot of value and they're adding value in complete opposite ways. And so that was really the main thing was um, it starts with finding amazing co-founders. Then it sort of expands out and, and you have to also have an amazing team. And so uh, we we have an amazing team. We give each of the team teams a lot of autonomy. So everyone in each of the businesses have, have massive amounts of autonomy. And it's like, look, 
you're going to make mistakes, try to minimize the big mistakes because you can't have too many big mistakes, but um, really let everyone run, minimize mistakes uh, and, you know, communicate, work together as a team. And so that's allowed me to, um, you know, run a few different brands at the, at, at the same time, because to your point, there is only limited hours in the day. And, and so that's really how we try to set it up from the start. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. Um, so let's talk about those three brands. Um, you know, the numbers that we talked about are pretty, pretty unprecedented. So going from you know, 4 million in combined revenues to 75 in, in two years or in a year, basically, yeah. um, just doesn't happen very often. Like, and I mean like really, really rarely, um, it might never happen for you again. Right. Um, so it'll be really interesting to reflect as you look back, you know, when you're, 20, 30 years from now, um, on this period, but for you, what, what would you attribute that success to, right? What would you say has driven you guys to have that kind of, uh, kind of dramatic growth in such a short period of time? Yeah, for sure. I, uh, and I agree with you, you know, cause I'm in it. I, I, uh, I still feel like we're in the infancy of the business. Like I, totally, I kind of know totally. like, that's, I, I kind of know like outward facing that's, that's a lot of revenue. It, it honestly doesn't sound that big to me when we talk about it just cause I'm in it. Right. So I'm already thinking about next year and kind of where we're going, totally. but I, yeah. but I know it, I know it does sound pretty sizable. I think there were, there were a couple, a couple key things, right? We already talked about the co-founders. So I had great co-founders, so I won't go into that. I think the yeah. other thing is, is that I think, um, I have a really great right-hand guy on the ops side. I think we set the ops up the right way to be able to allow us to scale because a lot of companies get really stuck trying to scale from an operational standpoint. And then I think the third thing is that to build digital first, you know, brands, right? There's a few elements to that, that I think Sharon and Jordan and Anne and, and the Dolans, they're all particularly good at, which is like community building and brand building, which is one. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be good at everything today to scale a brand and have high growth and do it, do it profitably. Right. So it's like this flywheel, right? You got to be, you got to want to lead with a great quality product. That's, you have to have that or you're not going anywhere. After you have a quality product, you have to be really strong at creative content, social, um, influencer marketing, paid acquisition, a really strong retention strategy. And then all of those things, right? Literally, if one of those pieces isn't working, you're going to get stuck and you're not going to scale. So it's that part is the hardest part to do, which is having all of those things uh, run smoothly at the same time. And I think for us, that's like what really, you know, allowed us to scale pretty quickly. Well, yeah. And I guess, you know, if you have these three businesses that are all doing fairly well, to your point earlier, you can leverage those insights across the businesses and say, hey, this is what we're doing on the retention side that's working really well, or this is how we're approaching the influencer space or the paid advertising space that's working really well. Right. So, um, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. doesn't sound easy. It makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, I start, go ahead. No, you go first. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to dive into that community building, uh, concept, right? So, um, I think in an, in an interview I listened to of yours, I think you might've mentioned it 17 times, this idea of community and yeah. community building. Right. So clearly it's really important. And I think a lot of what you talked about were strategies that we used really early on that I think were really effective, right? Just building relationships with anybody. Like you would reach out to individual followers that would follow you on Instagram and say, hey, how can we be helpful? Um, you know, and as well as I think you said personally that you enjoy brand building like or uh, community yeah. building, right? It's your own personal contribution to the company. 
Um, so talk to me a little bit about the philosophies that you guys have there when it comes to community building, some of the tactics yeah. that you've used that have worked really well. Um, would love to hear about that a little bit more. So for sure. And for me, this is the most fun part about building a brand. Cause if you really think about what a brand is, right. You know, we cut back, let's call it two years ago when insert name here started, I'll use that as an example. One day we were, there was nothing. It didn't exist. The next day there's an Instagram account. There's zero followers, right? There's a website up and we're like, you know, hello world. We're insert name here. We're a hair brand. We're, we're live. Right. And we literally had to take that account and take it from zero followers into what it is today in an environment where it's really hard to grow on social. Right. And so in order to do that in the beginning, there's no way to avoid, no matter how much money you raise or whatever, right. There's no way to avoid like the initial hard work that goes into the community building brand building side of just building a brand. And so examples of that were we were literally DMing uh, every single person that followed our brand early on. A lot of them came from Sharon and Jordan early on, you know, from their, from their, their they sort of you know, have their own influence in their own, right? Right. And we would yep. DM every single one of them and say, Hey, thanks so much for the support. Let us know if you have any questions. We really appreciate it. We're here for you. Right. And we did that for like the first five to 10,000 followers. So Right from the beginning, we built a really, really strong base early on. And we also had turned, we actually turned DM into a sales funnel where we use DM as like a prospecting channel when we first started, <laughs> right? Yeah. The second, the second was, um, you got to have like the cool factor, right? So we were good at like content and creative. And that's why that goes back to that flywheel. You got to set it up the right way. And then there's the, there's the like sort of influencer element that comes into play and the validation factor that comes from relationships with influencers. So luckily, again, I think another competitive advantage going to quickly how quickly we scaled, we all had really solid influencer relationships. And that was definitely really mm -hmm. helpful, a huge competitive advantage. Um, and we really, you know, nurtured those relationships. Um, some of the influencers we worked with early on, they weren't necessarily huge. They had 25,000, 50,000 followers. We really spent a lot of time with them, built great relationships with them, and they became amazing advocates for the brand. And then what's interesting as the brand building process goes along and it's really cool to see is in the beginning, you know, you get a couple people that like tag you on social, right? And when they do that little tap tag, that's like at Glamedic or at insert name here, and you start seeing the tags, you're like, oh, this is really interesting. Um, but then there's like this compounding effect happen, compounding effect that happens, right? Where there's like more influencers talking about it because you're running the influencer strategy, you're building the community there. Um, you've got you're starting to develop a voice as a brand as you go through your own socials, right? And you have a point of view, you have a distinct point of view. Um, and then you get the word of mouth effect, right? That's like kind of coming into play at the same time. And all of a sudden it becomes cool to tag your brand on social. And mm -hmm. then you've now avoided being a commoditized, you know, business, right? Because in the end, they're buying your product for the community, for the brand and, um, you know, how you, you compete against, you know, the, the Amazons of the world that can dupe any product is no one's going on Instagram and tagging Amazon for where they got their product. Right. And so when you mm -hmm. see, you know, when you start to see like thousands of consumers start to tag your product, you've built this like really sticky community that just comes into that flywheel we talked about. Yeah. It's going to be super cool just to look at, you know, all of this just happening. Right. And now so much of it happening without you having to do anything. Like you just go on Instagram. It's like just thousands of people tagging you. 
It's just got to be super well, cool. But, um, but you all, but, but there, right, it's a, it's a two-way street. So the thousands of people, they'll start to tag you as it builds up. But you have to then, if anything, you have to triple down on your communication with them, right? Because now you've got a community. Now you've got people yep, talking yep. to you. You have to, you have to talk back to them. You have to engage. Um, you have to make sure that they know that their opinion is super valued, which it is, right? I think we take crazy amounts of insights from our consumer base. We now have really engaged Facebook groups that are really valuable. Um, and so if anything, once that happens, you can't let up. You have to like triple down on, on that, uh, that community aspect. It's really funny and kind of timely. I was talking to CeraVe's team earlier this week and they're on fire, right? And yep. I think that they're finally getting the attention of people, but they've been on fire for three years in a row. I think they went from like the number, it was like the number 90th ranked brand we tracked to number 50 to number, now they're in like number 21, which is really tough to do as a mass brand, right? Mass brands just don't get talked about as much right. as kind of higher price point brands. And, you know, the conversation I was having with them is their community over the last community of influencers from last year to this year is up by about 3x. Um, but the team size hasn't grown at all. And I'm like, guys, like you're, this is, you're starting to miss really big opportunities here. Like every time somebody with thousands of fans or tens of thousands or millions of fans tags you in a post and then doesn't yep. hear anything from the brand, like that's a really big missed opportunity, right? It's kind of like clientele yeah. on the luxury side. Like if you have somebody that's got 20,000 fans that tags your brand and you don't have, they don't have any interaction here, you know, they hear crickets on the other side from the brand itself. Like that's a really big problem. Um, and when you don't do that, somebody else is going to, and that's going to be a relationship that they build with that influencer that you had the opportunity to do. And so I think people just don't get it. And I think within a lot of these larger brands, they just don't understand the scale that's happening and the okay. number of missed opportunities. So I just love hearing that from you. It's, it's, uh, it's so in line with what we see work. I a hundred percent agree. And I also still think, although it's changed a little bit, it's continued to change. The influencer piece of the business for a while was like a check the box moment for brands where they kind of mm -hmm. wanted to check the box that they put some of their budget towards it. It kind of made everyone happy because it was like the buzzworthy thing. Um, but, you know, that's just checking the box. It doesn't actually do all those other things that, you know, we've just talked about. And so I think it would be great to see more. Actually, it would be great not to see more because we're happy to have them not do it and we'll do it. But, but, um, but, you know, look, I think it would be, I, I think it would certainly be, be, uh, important for them to think about doing that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it would be wise, right? Um, okay. Let's talk about the influencer space specifically. Obviously that's, you know, why a lot of people work with us is specifically to learn about influencers. And I think you've got probably more knowledge than, uh, the vast majority of the people in the world when it comes to this topic, right? So let's talk first about kind of influencers themselves, because you advise a lot of them. And we don't bring a lot of people on here that advise the creators and how they should be managing their own careers. So one of the concepts you've talked about that I think is super interesting is this Leo concept, which is license, endorse, or own. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that concept as well as where did it come from? Is this something that yeah. you, know, you learned while you were at WME and you know it's just become even more important now that all these influencers are creating their own brands? 
Um, so a little bit of the history as well as, you know, what your philosophy yeah. are on it as well. Yeah. So, uh, so Leo is an acronym that I'm pretty sure I came up with. I haven't heard anyone else say it. So if, <laughs> if, if there's anyone that said it before 2018, then I will hundred percent give them credit. Um, but it, it sort of came from the fact that when I was thinking through like the careers of uh, particularly this is larger influencers, right? So this is the, the top sort of like 500 influencers in the space that have real scale. How should they best approach and think about their business as they're growing it? Right. And so I sort of use the acronym Leo, broke it down into when you're looking at your business uh, from the lens of how should I partner with someone or build out a particular business? Do I license? Do I endorse or do I own? Right. And so when you think about, well, what do I endorse? I'm as an influencer, I would think about endorsing something that I probably never have uh, the ambition to build on my own, right? Maybe it's something really complex and it's in an, it's in a space in a category that pays large dollars, right? So I'm going to maximize my cash earning potential through big endorsement deals. Maybe most likely I'm not going to build it on my own. That falls in the endorsement category, right? So then on the other side, two sides of the equations, you've got sort of like a little bit of a hybrid of like, I kind of own it as a license deal, but not really. I'm getting a royalty and then you've got the own it side. So then I split it into, okay, on the ownership side, as a big influencer, you can only, you only have so much bandwidth, right? So like, what are the one or two things that I actually want to build on my own? And this, like the Dolan twins with Waycart would be a really good example of that. They wanted to really build something in the fragrance space. They chose to go down the path of not doing an endorsement deal in fragrance. They're going to own, you know, co-own Waycart, right? Have real ownership in something. And then there's other things that like maybe they, they don't make the most sense to own, you know, outright and operate. Cause you can only pick one or two things for that, but maybe they've got a lot of like real potential for incremental dollars where if it doesn't harm the overall, um, you know, brand value that you have out there, you can have a few select licensing deals that can act sort of like a hybrid of an endorsement deal and an ownership stake where you're getting a really nice, you know, minimum guarantee and a royalty on that. And that's, that's really like the lens I would look at it from a creator perspective. Um, and then, and then sort of, if you get a little bit more complex on top of that, and there's very few influencers that'll get this far, it's like, okay, then how can I put my dollars to work? And the ones that are actually starting to not only own, own their own brands that they're also promoting, but then, um, you know, passively cutting checks as investors into these brands or startups, that's sort of like the next level of that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's really like, I was just trying to think of an easy way to explain it. And I was at a conference one time and, and honestly just popped in my head in the moment and it sounded good. And, and that's, uh, <laughs> I've kind of, I've kind of stuck with it, stuck with that sense. Um, you know, when I, when I think about evaluating a big creator's business. Yeah. You've got to connect it to like Leonardo DiCaprio or something, right? Like, you know, then you can actually use it to talk about specific examples, but I love it. I think it's great. And I think it makes a ton of sense. I really dig the, uh, you know, the, the kind of mogul stage at the top, right? Where you've gotten so big where now you can do the, the blaze pizza deal with LeBron James, right? Where you're, yep. you're investing in businesses actively. Um, before, so I was going to hop into kind the brand side of influencers, but I got one more question on the influencer side, which is, you know, for those that don't know, you know, how would you tear out the earning potential of the creators, right? So what points in their career um, or at what points in their career 
are they, and how, how much money are they making at different points in their career, right? So yeah. north of a million fans, what should be the expectations? At 100K, what should be the expectations? At 25K, what should be the expectations? At 25K, 25 million, what sure. should be the expectations? How do you think about those tiers specifically? God, I, sure. it's so, tough for me to get that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, so it, it, so it, it depends on the platform, right? So let's, yep. let's take someone that, look, if someone is an Instagram first influencer, it's going to be a lot less dollars they're making as they go up, you know, from, from a million on Instagram to a million on YouTube. The person that's consistent with a million on YouTube is going to make a lot more money, right? And then you also have to look at what's hot in the moment. The person that's got a million on TikTok now is probably making the, more than just the person that may have a million on Insta. It, it, it really depends on like moment in time. And then also how do you monetize the platforms? So, um, you know, someone, look, someone's not going to start making any significant amount of money. Let's, let's say they're an Instagram influencer, you know, maybe they get a couple hundred thousand followers and they're starting to get their like $500 to a thousand dollar, you know, brand deals here and there. There's really not too many other ways on Instagram to monetize right now, but mm -hmm. let's say someone gets a million followers on YouTube, right? And let's say they're getting, you know, a hundred thousand views a video. Maybe they're getting a couple million views a month. They're, they could be making 15, you know, 15 K, 20 K a month just on the YouTube AdSense. Where it gets really compelling is if you're a really big influencer with a huge YouTube base and huge YouTube views, right? And if you can actually, you know, Google has this thing called Google Preferred, which pays a much higher CPM to influencers that have clean content um, and, you know, top tier advertisers want to work with. And, you know, if you're at 15, 20 million subs and you're doing a couple hundred million views a month at the top end of that, you're making a million to $2 million a month in just YouTube money. Right. And there's real mm -hmm. scale. Um, and then, you know, look, look it, again, it varies across the board. There could be someone with a million on TikTok right now. And it's the hot thing in the moment for brands and brands may not exactly know how to price those, uh, those deals yet. And so they may be getting a little bit more simply just because brands don't know how to price it out yet. Right. So it's, it's really all over the board. Um, you'd have to break it down by platform in terms of how much they make, but generally YouTube creators that get lots of views are making way more money, um, you know, than anyone else on, on if you're, if that's their, their first platform that they're, they're, you know, focusing on. Yeah. It's surprising from a numbers perspective on our side that there aren't more YouTubers knowing that the earning potential is so much greater. I guess it's just much more difficult to be successful there. Just takes a more effort. Very hard. And right. And, and the audiences a lot of times are not that transferable, except in pockets and moments of time. There's moments in time, like the rise of TikTok, where there's such a rabid fan base around the major influencers of the moment, right? The Addisons, the Charlies, the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, Josh Richards, all those guys, right? That, that they are actually transferring a lot of followers over from TikTok to YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. but if mm -hmm. you've built on Instagram for a while and you start a YouTube channel, it's a whole, it's a whole other ball game, right? It's like almost, it's, it's like a different type of content too, to build that YouTube audience and the YouTube base, which is really, it's really hard and it takes a long time. And I think, um, the influencers that are patient and they can create compelling content to ultimately get there, but, uh, it's a grind. It's not easy. Yeah. I mean, you have to measure it in percentages, right? You go from one to one follower to two followers. That's a hundred percent growth, right? So right, it multiplies right. out over time, but it takes a really long time to get there. 
Um, yep. Well, let's let's flip our hats a little bit and go back to the brand side, just because that'll be the majority of the people that were are listening to this. Um, so, as a brand owner in the lifestyle space, you know what are some of the philosophies that you have about working with creators and working with influencers, um, as well as you know what do you think are some of the mistakes that either you made or that others make in the space? Would love to hear your thoughts on both of those. Yeah, so I think every brand would probably tell you this, but they want to partner with. You know, you generally and we we generally want to partner with influencers and creators that align with the values of the audience, uh, you know, that we're going after for sure and the brand brand values. So that's number one. And then I think number two is you build as you build out a robust influencer program, you kind of need to have different tiers as you go, right? And so we have a really large gifting team that specifically, you know, each of the brands just focuses on gifting up and coming creators. Um, where there's not necessarily compensation and we're just gifting them. And then we've got our bucket of larger influencers that we work with that are, you know, our paid partnerships. And this is where it gets tricky for the brands. And a lot of them either get discouraged or they just, they, they, they have a lot of trouble here, right? On the, on the, on the paid side of things is they'll say, Oh, I put a hundred thousand dollars in and I got $20,000 out. Right. And they're not necessarily yeah. measuring all of the different, different, uh, effects that working with those influencers have, right? There's some that are not measurable, like the indirect community building kind of cool cred factor. There's some that are measurable, like if you give them a discount code, what's the direct sales that they're getting through their code or their link, right? Um, but then I think the other issue is that these brands don't really understand how the entire flywheel plays into the influencer component. And if they look at it as a singular thing where we're like, look, we're going to pay influencers and we're expecting a direct ROI, they're probably never going to be able to get there. You have to plug it into the overall system and it's just one piece to the puzzle and it drives. It's literally like the, the little thing that the, the arrows go back. It's like like mm-hmm. great email SMS strategy drives the influencer strategy, which drives this. And it's just like this flywheel, right? And paid media, how paid media and influencers run together to amplify, uh, you know, amplify the influencers message is also really important. And I think a lot of brands just, even when I talk about it, I talk about this with bigger brands all the time. They still can't figure it out. That's, that's the thing is like, (laughs) in the beginning I was, I was like, well, I don't know if I want to like talk about all this. And then I literally would lay out the strategy and they still can't execute on it. And so, um, it's just really hard to do. Yeah. Totally. Well, I think too, you know, you have to think like, I think I, the thing I think a lot about is legacy infrastructure. So, you know, the way that these brands are organized, um, doesn't result in a lot of information sharing. It doesn't result in a lot of collaboration, right? They're really siloed. Like the team that's in the UK doesn't talk to the team that's in the U S the team that does affiliate marketing doesn't talk to the team that does PR, the team, you know, like, so you've got all of these, oh my God, uh, you've got all these disconnected elements that are, you know, d- just aren't designed for the way that brand building works today. It's like one of the biggest surprises I heard was like, you know, Shiseido, right? So Shiseido, the brand in Japan is like the American brand. And in Japan is like, or is in in the US is like the Japanese brand. And it's like, well, that's not how the world works anymore, right? The world's global. What does your website say? And so I think that making changes like that, making changes to existing infrastructure where you have parties that are very invested in that infrastructure, like they don't want to get laid off. The person that's doing paid advertising on TV doesn't want to get fired and doesn't want to learn how YouTube works. 
And so there's just a lot of impedance there and just a lot of resistance uh, to change that's understandable. So it's uh, you can tell everybody what to do. They're still not going to figure it out or <laughs> get it done as quickly. I think all your points are completely valid. And there's been, you know, in marketing, right? It used to be you're the marketer that's in charge of TV. You're the marketer that's in charge of outdoor, right? And marketing is so interconnected now, right? That everyone has to be working really, really cohesively. Um, and I think it's just really hard. And, and what's interesting, right? And, and why a lot of these bigger brands, it took them a while to get into the influencer space because of all the things you said, wait until they try to jump into live commerce, because I think that's the next thing that's on the come up. And that's going to be like the buzzword of the next two years. And I think that if they didn't know what to do on the influencer space, trying to figure out this live commerce model at scale is going to be really, really, really hard for them to do. So talk to me about that a little bit. When you say live commerce, are you talking about kind of the live streaming model that you see in China really commonly where, you know, people are live streaming, selling almost like an infomercial. Uh, Is that what you're talking about specifically or, uh, and and uh, what have you seen work there? I'd say. Absolutely. So I think, um, a lot of the live shopping experiences have, have been very successful in Asia, right? I think 9% of Mm -hmm. e-commerce sales are coming from live shopping in Asia have not even begun to be, uh, you know, be put into play here in any significant way. But I think there's going to be one, all of the platforms are trying to figure out commerce right now. Live yeah. shopping is going to become a really, really important piece of that. Um, I think that brands are also the forward thinking brands are also trying to think through right now what that looks like. I think for us next year is going to be a year of experimentation. I think that any brand that jumps into live commerce, they've also got to look at it as something that's a major investment of time that may not have any short term results. So you have to have a long term view on where the space is going. I think um, the hottest role that brands are going to hire in the next in two years from now is going to be the head of live commerce. Like, I think that's going to be mm-hmm. a role inside brands that it's going to be the hot new buzzword, just where like everyone's hiring influencer marketers five years ago and they were scrambling. Everyone's going to be scrambling to hire someone who has real proficiency in live, the live shopping experience. And the unknown is how does all of this play out with, you know, you have to have different strategies for different platforms, which platform is going to be a better job, do a better job executing. Then there's new platforms that are coming out like network, which is, you know, networks for like the cool kids. They're doing shoe drops and all that stuff. Right. Or there's one called pop shop live. And um, it seems like they're kind of going down like the Etsy seller path. Right? They got a lot of like Etsy stores, like crystal sellers. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're gonna have the big platforms that the brands are going to jump on and, I don't know, man. It's for me, I'm spending a massive amount of time just reading, learning, you know, staying constantly curious in the space because I think it's a really important thing. And I talk to the team about it all the time. I'm like, we have to learn everything we can about this to make sure we're prepared. Yeah, I think it sounds like I need to spend more time on it. I honestly haven't spent too much time paying attention to it. I've known that it's a big thing in China for a very long time. But uh, yeah, you've, you've inspired me to check it out. Um, so let's... We're going to come into our time here, and I still have like 50 other questions I want to ask you, but let's go through a couple more. Then we'll go through the fun, you know, a few fun questions I got from Sharon and Jordan. Um, And yeah, then we'll wrap up. So, you know, you talked about the influencer space as being multifaceted, right? So you've got all these different elements. Um, What are some of the KPIs that you guys keep track of internally that help you to know that things are working? 
right? Um, yeah. Or maybe you don't keep track of KPIs. I'd love to hear, you know, what those are. Sure. Yeah, there, there, there's a number we keep track of. There's again, there's like the direct ones you look at, like how many link clicks did they get? How many discount codes were used? How many followers did we pick up from those specific influencers? Um, there's some more, you know, th- there's other metrics like what are the comments that their, their uh, you know, followers are talking about with the brand? Um, mm-hmm. You know, how many shares are the posts getting? You kind of got to look at like all the analytics that are available, right? And then you also have to have a little bit of like the instinctual knowing what works for your brand. And then there's like the, does this work for paid media as well, right? So it's, mm-hmm. and, and, and will this, um, you know, the indirect, and, and again, it's hard to track, but as a brand owner, you sort of know if you really know your brand, like was this influencer effective or not? And was it a good match for us as a brand by looking at all those direct things and then sort of taking in the indirect piece um, into play? And the other thing is we, we really want long-term relationships too. Like we, we mm-hmm. don't, we try to avoid a bunch of one-offs and want relationships that grow over time with all of these influencers. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the data, like you were talking about retention marketing as it relates to customers, the exact same thing is true on the influencer side. Like if you're churning out half the influencers you work with this year, you don't work with next year, or they stop talking about you because you ignored them, it's just impossible to build a really big base. And so um, long-term relationships are just so so consistent in terms of what we see be successful um, that it's not surprising to hear you say that. Um. So let's get into kind of COVID specifically. You know, obviously you guys are direct to consumer brands. Um, so you guys are brands that, you know, were kind of built for this. And imagine that in a lot of ways, um, it had to have helped you weather the storm, so to speak. But have you guys made any changes now that you can't have as many face to face interactions? Um, hopefully this all goes away in six to nine months once the vaccine's fully distributed. But I'd love to hear about what's worked for you guys on that side, as well as, um, you know, what you've, what you've stuck with. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, look, the first few weeks of COVID for like for anyone, right. was incredibly scary as a brand because mm-hmm. most brands, I think their sales just tanked the first couple of weeks. Cause it was like Maslow's hierarchy of needs where food, shelter, <laughs> am I going to get food, toilet, toilet paper. paper, right? <laughs> not, um, not, am I going to get my lashes or fragrance or hair? Right. And then obviously mm-hmm. an interesting thing happened when, you know, a couple of weeks later, Everything was at home. I think we benefited a lot with our brands because particularly lashes and hair, it's DIY at home um, and you can't go into the store. So that that helped a lot. We made a lot of, I think what helped us a lot was that we were really great. We already used a lot of UGC content through influencers and others. The team did an amazing job adapting uh, shooting a lot of con- the, the team shot content at home, you know, Sharon and Jordan or Ann on Glamet, they're all the founder faces of the brand. So they were constantly giving updates to everyone. I think we, you know, we did a good job sort of being a friend to just the consumer base that was going through the same thing. Um, and thankfully and fortunately, we, we had rapid high growth this year. Um, and it's been, it's been a wild, wild year. Well, I'm glad to hear that things rebounded so quickly. Yeah, those first few weeks, it was just like, what's, I mean, you know, businesses don't like uncertainty and there's a lot of uncertainty at that time. Um, I'm really glad to hear that you guys obviously not only pulled out of it, but accelerated during this time. 
I mean, again, I, I think I pulled some estimates from a, uh, a video or an interview you did in August where you said you were going to do 50 million this year. And then, yeah. you know, now it's 75. So I'd, I'd call that, you know, doing okay. Um, yeah, I'd say, no, awesome. I'd say November, November was, was really strong. Was a strong <laughs> That's awesome to hear. Well, let's get into yeah. some of the fun questions. If you don't like them, you know who to blame. Um, it's not All me. Right. Uh, All so right. we'll start at the top. And I know you haven't heard these. So uh, yep. first up, uh, Sharon and Jordan want to know what's up with the green tea. Oh man, the green, by the way, I got it. I got it right here. So it's my one thing when, when, all right. So when I was in the, when I was in the mailroom at WME and then I became an assistant, right. So you become an assistant to an agent, right. So I wasn't, I was the worst assistant in the world, by the way, but I had to get there sometimes at like six 30 in the morning. Uh, I was working crazy hours. Right. And I was like, what am I going to drink to stay up? I hated coffee. I got on a green tea kick and I drink no joke, like six cups of green tea a day. I do it every single day. I, 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 when I ran out during, the, I literally was postmating green tea every single day. It's, it's, uh, I can't live without it. It's you my one, it's my one vice, that. you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, I stop after three. So this is the last, the last cup of the day, but, uh, I can't live without it. I had to cut out coffee entirely just because I was having, you know, I've got too much energy as it is. And so, you know, I wasn't sleeping very well. And so I was just, you know, read about what causes you not to sleep. It was like coffee, lack of exercise, working too late. And it's like, well, these are literally all the things that I do. And so I cut out coffee and slept a lot better. Although it sounds like you might not have time for sleep. So, you know, keep the green tea up. Yep. By the way, what's interesting as a founder, right? And this is, we didn't go into all the, you know, all the hard things with the founder, but in the day, you think about growth and how to grow the business. And at night, you think about what can go wrong, right? And I mean, you know this yeah. as, a found, as a founder, right? Oh, and, yeah. so, um, and so it doesn't allow for much sleep. But again, I, I love what I do. Ah, I mean, I'm the same way. Um, okay, so I've got a couple nicknames here. E-Boy Kevin and Kevina. What are those oh, nicknames and what, <laughs> what, what are they talking about? So Kavina, uh, and by the way, this goes back, there's so many ways you can build a community and integrate a story. So um, Sharon and Jordan, for the most part, but me sometimes as well, I get integrated in all the Instagram stories and the content. And we kind of thought it would be funny to drop an actual limited edition wig that was called Kavina. So we did a whole fake photo shoot. I'm rocking like a cobalt blue wig. We, we literally called it Kavina. My face was on the site. Um, and... Uh, it actually sold decently, which I was surprised by. Um, I think the e-boy thing, <laughs> we, uh, going back to the content, it was, I don't know. We, Haley, who was on our team one day was like, Hey, I want to shoot TikTok with you. And, uh, it, I don't know. It ended up getting like four and a half million views on TikTok. And so they, uh, I think that's where that, that one came from. <laughs> there you go. I would love to have a, uh, four million view TikTok that I totally forgot yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, I told, I told, I told the team, I was like, wait, how'd I just pick us up 10,000 followers on TikTok? Um, and it didn't have anything to do with hair. It was, uh, so, um, it was wild. That's funny. Okay. Last one. I think this is more for me, but you seem to be pretty, uh, a pretty prolific YouTube watcher. Um, do you have, what are your favorite channels? Um, and then an addendum to that, who are your favorite thought leaders? Anybody that you follow and pay attention to that you think other people should should listen to absolutely maybe i'll work work reverse there um yeah. i 
I mean, look, I consume lots of different things. So my whole thing is I want to be educated on as many things as I can. So what that means is like I'm listening to New Music Friday every week on Spotify. It's New Music Friday because I want to know what's up on music, right? I'm looking at TikTok every couple of days to just see who's trending. I'm reading politics. I'm watching CNBC. I'm watching the stock market. I'm watching all of these things because I want to have a good just generalist knowledge of everything that's going on. Um, in terms of thought leaders, I really have lately been, um, I read, uh, is a guy named Naval Ravikant. He is mm-hmm. uh, the founder Angelist. of AngelList. Mm-hmm. Man, he's a really, really smart guy. It, it wasn't about business. It was about just like life. He has a really amazing perspective on life. So I've consumed a lot of his content and, and it's a good break from like all of the other business content I consume all the time. Um, Shamath, who uh, is the founder of Social Capital Partnership, who's mm-hmm. pretty prolific up in Silicon Valley. I really like, I think he has interesting insights around like where the economy is going, where business is going, where Silicon Valley is going. Um, I consume lots of different, uh, I like group chat, which is a podcast I listen to a lot. Um, I, uh, I consume... I consume a lot of content by just brands. So I'm just watching their stories all the time. So it's not like one particular YouTube channel or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'm looking, I'm looking at what everyone is doing, um, and pulling bits and pieces. And, and I don't know, it's like a constant, it's like the journey of life where you're just constantly learning new things. I love, I love learning. And so, um, I'm pulling pieces from everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about kind of knowledge consumption today versus 30, 40 years ago. One of the numbers that always stood out to me was Warren Buffett. He spends between four to six hours reading every day. Um, And this idea of saying like, I'm going to collect as much information as I possibly can. And then from there, and then I'm going to try and limit the number of decisions I make, but the decisions that I make are going to be very impactful, right? So they're going to be very big decisions, very small number of them. And I'm going to be as well informed as I can possibly be about those decisions. Um, So, but you know, that was him reading four to six hours a a day of like newspapers, books, and now it's YouTube podcasts, you know, all this stuff. Um, Anyways, I really appreciate you taking out the time, Kevin. And uh, I know I learned a lot today. I think people are really going to appreciate you taking out the time uh, to help them out, and hopefully we can help both the the up and coming brands as well as the the <laughs> the legacy brands yeah. that ha- have yep. have some ways to go. But yeah, thanks so much for taking out the time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Connor, thanks for having me. It was it was a lot of fun, and and I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at TribeDynamics.com. TribeDynamics.com.